Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, it's really easy. Just head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links to the show. Also note that during the show, you will see a little QR code coming up. There it is, as a matter of fact, right there. That QR code, if you scan it on your phone or anything else that's QR code friendly, will take you to a place where you can put questions directly into the process. For those of you who have been around for a while and use the Mukana interface. That's still more full-featured. You get to have a discussion there and talk to others about the questions. And uh, in any case, if your questions get in, whether they come through the QR code or they come through the regular Mukana system, you can always vote them up and down. We always are encouraging everyone to ask all the questions because our cool little voting system allows you to take the topics that are most interesting to you and push them up to the top of the system with your votes. So do that and that determines kind of the run of the show here. Today in our second hour, we're continuing our deep dive into coverage of HDR and the migration of video into this new high, high dynamic range era. Uh, we have special guests coming back in again, and uh, Jim Toten and Michael Dresden, I think, are going to be here along with some other cool guests in our second hour to really do a deep dive into HDR workflows. So if you're interested in that and uh, maybe in the broadcast industry and how everything is changing into those kind of workflows, this is the place to be today for our second hour. So this is the first hour. However, Mitch, what do we have on tap for our first question today? Thank you, Bill. Up is Alexander Knight from Port Quicklin, British Columbia, Canada. One podcast I produced for a client was recently accepted into the YouTube partner program. After being asked to create an AdSense account, he received a letter that his content doesn't meet, quote, program policies, unquote. Suggestions? Alex, have you heard of this before? Yeah, there's a variety of reasons that can be the case. Um, so I think that what you want to do is um, uh, probably reach out to the YouTube liaison on Twitter, and that is Renee Ritchie. <laughs> so, so Renee Ritchie is uh, on Twitter, and if you do an at him or probably even DM him, he is the person whose job it is to figure out what's going on. So, um, and I think I don't think Renee will mind me saying that. I mean, he does have an account that's YouTube liaison on Twitter. I don't, without knowing more information about the show, it's very hard to know what doesn't meet um, program policies. It could be um, content. It could be, you know, everything from, a, you know, I don't, I just don't know enough about your show. Um, so the subject matter could be something that they consider not something they want. And what they're, sometimes that, that has to do with is um, uh, if they don't think that they can push advertisers against it, then they, that it's, it's an outside of a policy thing. So there's something I think that that's being said inside of the content that they don't think they can advertise against. Um, so that's the, and that's why that I think that that's why you're getting it, but I don't know for sure. Chris Fenwick. Yeah, almost certainly that's, that's the issue because if you think about the way podcasting works is you have a bunch of independent people making shows and then you have a bunch of ad people that are trying to sell ads. And in today's day and age, a lot of companies are realizing that, um, the, the non-traditional media actually has more impact on, um, on audiences than traditional media. And so a lot of people are really seeing that the podcasting world, if you will, is a more attractive place to spend their, their ad dollar. So because of that, they have to fall into very kind of um, safe guidelines. So like if I was doing a show where I talked about, you know, how... Um, 
I don't believe in traditional medicine, but I'm going to talk about a bunch of homeopathic stuff. Well, drug companies don't want to advertise on a show about homeopathic uh, 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 cures for things. So that might be seen as a problem. And without going into, you know, politics or anything like that, there's a million things that are not considered ad safe. One way around it, I'll tell you, is to just avoid the whole ecosystem. The, at, the, at its core, at its origin, podcasting didn't fall into these, you know, strict guidelines. It was very much kind of the Wild West. And that still exists. You can still generate your own RSS feed. And there are ways to get audiences that don't involve going through YouTube and don't involve going through Apple, uh, you know, iTunes. It's a different audience. It's a smaller audience. And you don't have the straightforward ways of getting money through like AdSense. But if your message is more important than those dollars, that's the way to do it. And the, there's a trend. Uh, it's called I think it's called Podcasting 2.0. Uh, Adam Curry, the person who you know sort of started the podcasting thing with David Weiner, he has a whole... Uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of podcast... Um, apps that are totally outside of the traditional ecosystem. Um, and they actually have features that are way beyond what like iTunes and Spotify and stuff do. Um, it might be worth looking into if your uh, non-AdSense-friendly uh, content is more important to you than the potential dollars to make from it. Look into it. Podcasting 2.0. Thank you for all of that. Let's go to the next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas, asking Apple, NVIDIA, Alphabet, Intel, Samsung, AMD, Synopsys, and others plan to invest between $25 million and $100 million each in ARM's IPO. Amazon decided against. What's the significance of this? John Preto, what are your thoughts? So for Apple's the normal investment because their their processor based on ARM technology, but for the other ones, it's a hedge. So for Intel, this is a total hedge against the, their own processors. It's just, normal for these companies to invest across the board like this. Alex. Yeah, I think that Amazon does, just doesn't have, I don't think they feel the need. <laughs> like, I think that all of these other companies absolutely have to have a hand in what's going on with ARM because their futures are completely entwined with it. Whereas Amazon probably looks at it and goes, well, we don't, you know, we are going to benefit from all of them doing that, but there's not something they're going to ask for or push for. It's getting pulled in enough directions that it's probably going to go down a path that Amazon feels like it can it can probably uh, manage, and it probably doesn't see the need to put to spend twenty five to hundred million dollars uh, on something that it's just going to benefit from what the other companies are doing to push it forward. So I think that that's probably Amazon's calculation, and they are notoriously stingy <laughs> so they, they don't you know they're not going to spend money if they don't if they think they're going to get the same outcome without uh without having to spend any money yeah that's kind of a business basic if you don't need to spend it, it just goes well to the you know the, the, the funny thing about that is is that some sometimes you don't need to spend it but you get more obviously you get more influence you get closer to the front of the line when you throw money into it. So you know, by putting $100 million in, you're a bigger player in that pot than you would be otherwise. So I think that there is some reason to put money into it to make sure that, you know, your your notes are heard. Um, Amazon can probably guarantee that if they have anything that they ask for that is not being asked for by the others, uh, it won't happen. But I don't think they, I think that they're, they're not trying to be, at least from the stuff that I've seen so far, there's nothing that they're doing that's, attempting to be 
cutting edge, <laughs> you know, like it's not when it comes to like the hardware development that's using the ARM chips, uh, they are looking at cost effective solutions to deliver ads and content and let you buy things and so on and so forth. But they're not trying to, they're not going through the heavy lift of the, of really pushing the outer envelope. And so I think that they, they're, they're benefiting by just drafting off of the companies that are. Yeah, they don't really need a seat at that table. They're big enough to influence it regardless. All right, next question. Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, uh, British Columbia, Canada. I'm testing out a Soundcraft UL24R digital mix, which has eight channels of auto mix. Does auto mix only push down open mics on in inactive speakers in multi-mic setups? I noticed with just one mic, it does nothing. Courtney. Well, yeah, uh, essentially that's what it does because it takes, uh, uh, it, it achieves an average level by taking the, the mics that are getting signal now and adjusting the other mics downward so till it hits its average level uh, of the person speaking and the person, people that are not speaking. So, um, and the algorithms vary and they have different settings on them. So you can prioritize one channel over other channels so that. If one channel is speaking and somebody speaks up on another channel, it won't interrupt that person by bringing their microphone up until that other person stops speaking. So it has things like that. But uh, yeah, it does have the basic uh, result is it brings down all the channels that are not that don't have sound on them. So you hear less of the uh, sound coming from the speaker in the same room over the other microphones. Alex. It's pushing all the mics down. You just can't see it because they're not there. <laughs> <laughs> it only has to make one decision. It doesn't look like it doesn't Everything look like anything's happening. Down. It doesn't look like anything's happening because it's, it's just like I'll push all these down, and there's nobody there, so it just pushes down nothing. But it's it's, it's pushing down. If there's nobody there, they're already turned. <laughs> if you if you auto mix a channel and it's not there, does it really exist? This is way too philosophical for this morning. I think we desperately need to move yeah, to the next question. It's auto gain control if it's just one microphone. It's auto mm -hmm. mix if there are multiple microphones. That's all right. JJ <laughs> McKenna from Lower Escabo, California has a question. In this dawn of AI, what is the practical methodology of adding artificial learning to developing software guided by humans? Are there any AI software packages that one can install and feed data sets in a closed environment to affect this construct. John Pratt isn't going to start us off here. John? Why does this remind me of Aquarius? This is the dying of the age of Aquarius. Mitch, I need a little background vocals here. Age Where's the fifth dimension? No, no, don't, don't, don't do it. So, so what's happening is people build upon a foundational model, right? So you get Llama or Llama 2, and then you have your data set that you feed into, and hopefully you have enough data for the relevance for for the AI to take control of, of your additional data. But that's there's tons of this stuff out. If you go to Hugging Face, there's tons of these applications and platforms out there. And OpenAI just announced the developers conference in November. And they're supposedly announcing a bunch of new stuff like this at that at that event. Paul Wallace. Yeah, I think that uh, coding is really taking off with AI and the the general mass of uh, public is is getting less interested and coders are really benefiting right now. Alex. John, can you explain Hugging Face? Hugging Face is just a, a social community for for AI. So there's there's open source models there and there's all kinds of related information and code. It's it's a cross between GitHub and 
um, like Reddit. That's what it is. It's more resembling like a Reddit. So it's it's a cross between Reddit and GitHub, specifically designed for AI. That's a little frightening. Anyway, <laughs> well, it's well, and, and you know, I think that one of the things about um, uh, all of this stuff, the, the folks that I think are benefiting the most from this are the actually not the beginner programmers, but the advanced ones, because you know the the, the tendency to do subtle, be subtly off, or or to have some hallucinations related to things. An advanced programmer will look at it and go, "Oh, I I see what you did there, but that's not going to work." <laughs> so, and and but a but a, a beginner might try to actually use it and then end up spending more time trying to fix that because they don't know, they don't understand it. And so I think that, and this is um, a bigger problem, I think overall in AI is that folks that already know the subject actually benefit greatly from it because they, any subject, because they're getting to do busy work for them that they don't want to do. Um, but they know where it's wrong or they know where it's not putting stuff correctly into it. And that can be from texts, that can be from information. Like a lot of times, if I'm trying, I've talked about this in the past, if I'm trying to explain something, a lot of times I'll get ChatGPT to explain it to a fifth fifth grader or a senior in high school or a whatever, and I'll, I'll set, the, the big key is to set, you are coming, your source and destination. You are this person talking, this is the subject this is the destination. This is the person you're talking to. And I'll put that in and I'll do it a couple different angles. And it just helps me think about it. I already know the subject. <laughs> like I, already know, I, know, I know how to do it. But trying to think of cool metaphors or whatever greatly accelerates and improves my ability to talk about it. Um, so I think that that, and, but I think in the same way, uh, I, I talk to a lot of programmers and they use it for an enormous amount of their work now. Like it, it is really, but they know when it's not working. Like they know when it's off, but they it, it does do tons of, I just need you to build this one little class of code that does this and you look at it and you scan it and you go oh yeah it's better it's a lot faster than writing it you know there's 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 200 lines that you didn't have to type you know in there and oftentimes it will come up i'm told i haven't used it for this i'm told that it'll come up oftentimes with more elegant and more creative solutions than they would because it's it's thinking about all the things not the things not the way that they've always programmed so a lot of times they look at it and go huh that, that'll work. And that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty cool way to do it. Or, and, and again, equally, they'll say, it's not going to work. <laughs> so, and they just get it to do it again. But having it do it three times is way faster than writing it and trying to figure it out. It's interesting. AI is human guidance rather than human substitution. That kind of resonates I, with me. I'm really, you know, I think that there's a massive, you know, I'm, I'm looking at how do we process massive amounts of content. And I'm really fascinated by the idea of what AI can do um, related to what I work on, which is just, you know, we, we sometimes have hundreds and hundreds or thousands of, of questions coming in. How do we find what we're looking for? And I think that that's where this is going to be super valuable, where we used to have, now to your point, Bill, we, where we used to have 10 people, we, we can actually do it faster with two or three and a system that's kind of, we can guide and, and tweak um, and it'll actually do it faster and, and better than, than uh, the other seven that were going to be there. Yeah, still disruptive, but disruptive in a different way than people might imagine. So right. it'll be it, this will be a fascinating thing to watch as it goes on. Let's get to our next question. From Samuel Waterski from Owyhee, Nevada. I need a USB hub dock adapter, power delivery with over 150 watts, and hopefully at least four USB 3.2 ports. What's the panel suggest I buy for this? Oh, that's a lot of power. Chris Fenwick, you know anything? Uh Probably not. Uh, Samuel, I, I really hate it when somebody asks a question and the response comes back. You know, I don't know anything about that, but I'm going to talk about something else instead. Uh, I'm going to almost do that. So I've been watching 
anchor power supplies for quite some time now. Um, I, I, the products that they announce and the products that they show look super interesting. I've never actually bought one, so I can't speak from experience. But if you go to uh, anchor, A-N-K-E-R dot com, uh, and you scroll down, they have all kinds of different uh, power banks, but also chargers and power strips. And here's one right here, 240 watts, four ports. One of them's an A, sorry. But uh, I think I think it might be worth looking at at that company again. I haven't bought it myself, but I've been very intrigued by them for quite some time now. Uh, Paul Wallace. Yeah, I I used before office hours before I learned about OWC. I used Anchor and I used Satagi hubs. Now I use the OWCs. They're they seem to be much more popular among the office hours group here and. Uh, they make a form factor that'll fit under a Mac Mini, and this is one of those it depends questions. It depends on do you need USB 3.0? Do you need regular USB-A? What do you need, you know? Uh, Mitch Hill. I'm using an OWC uh, Thunderbolt dock, and it's 95 watts, and that's the most I've seen of any of the OWC devices that can go to. So 150 is going to be hard to reach in the OWC camp. Alex? Yeah, the top of the line OWC and Sonic Tech, uh, Sonnet or Sonic Tech um, are at 100 watts. Um, so they have those. And that's if you need data as well as power delivery. Um, to what Chris was talking about, um, uh, I have, this is, these are a couple that I, ca- I carry a lot of these around. Um, this is, this is 240, um, 240 watts. Uh, it doesn't do 240 watts per port. It does up to, I think, 100 watts per port. It's got three USB-Cs. Let's see if I can put it in here. Um, three, U- three USB-Cs and two USB-As. Um, and it is, it's, it's made by Wotobi, Wotobi US. Um, and I have another one by the same company that's that's 200 watts. That's smaller, um, and this one has uh, three USB Cs and one USB A. Um, and the advantage of this one is that the plug is built into it. The, I guess, the advantage of this one it takes cable, <laughs> so you can put it somewhere else. Uh, and this one, this one has a cable, but it's just a little less convenient. So um, I usually carry this is my this is my travel kit. I'm, <laughs> I'm going on a little trip today, so I'm I'm uh, this is my travel kit. That's why I was sitting there and. Uh, um, that's what I take with me to power everything that I need. Make um, sure you get them back things. in the bag. I'm going to put them back in the bag right after we answer this question. <laughs> All right. I'm going to... And, uh, one, oh, go ahead, Chris. I just want to wrap one other thing. And Samuel, you're right. You you said hub. I took power. I, I leaned heavy into the yeah. power distribution. So and, Alex and it, is right for pointing out the difference. Yeah, and I think that if you're looking for the hub, then I think 100 watts is going to be the most you're going to I haven't seen any hub that does 150 per port. Uh, but I think that um, you you look at the Sonic Tech. It's the, I think it's the Thunderbolt. Uh, Echo 11 Thunderbolt 4 dock is the is the, their top of the line. And OWC has another very large hub. They're all in the three to five hundred dollar range for those hubs, and they have they are self powered, so they can draw. They can they're not drawing it from your computer, um, and they both have a lot of ports. Yeah, I'm going to support Anchor as well. I have a lot of Anchor devices. The most recent one that I bought is their reasonably large power bank, and it has a lot of sophisticated circuitry in it. They're very good at power management and power distribution. In terms of the hub, uh, that was my original thought, was I haven't seen anything beyond 100 watts. I just don't think that's commonly out there. And even, I mean, this thing will recharge my MacBook Air a couple of times. It has enough juice to do that. And because of the power delivery ports on the new machines that that 
sync up and negotiate the power delivery to a device, they're very handy and very useful, even for something beyond recharging your phone and things that are commonly done. But as a power supply, I just don't see them going beyond 100. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Paul, do you have a last thought of something you know before? Yeah, just on? pay attention to the the port sizes. These are USB-C and these are USB-A. So you can adapt a USB-A to C, but you can't adapt this to A. I don't think you can anyway. I haven't seen it. Yeah, and that power delivery technology usually is on the form factor of USB-C slash Thunderbolt. So look for that if you want the most sophisticated. Anyway, let's move on to the next question. J.J. McKenna from Lower Scabo, California. The term podcast doesn't resonate for more produced video content that many folks create, including office hours. Is there a better word? We've addressed this before, and I think we're going to address it again. John Preto, what say you? Leo Laporte was on a, a he was hell-bent on changing the name to Netcast, and he, he ad nauseum tried to get this word out of the vernacular, but it's too late now. It's stuck. Courtney? Yeah, I think the problem came about when uh, Apple tried to enforce their trademark and say that they own the word pod. And so they were starting to sue people over podcast and they lost. And then uh, it uh, became generic um, in that respect. But webcast has been used a lot of times to mean video type. But usually webcast refers to a live uh, web-based event as opposed to a podcast, which is usually uh, produced offline and posted somewhere for people to download and put into their iPod. Thank you, Apple, uh, for uh, playing back at their leisure. Paul? Yeah, I, same thing Preto said. You know, there was this controversy for a while. Is it a webcast? Is it a podcast? Is it a netcast? What is it, you know? So, Chris Fenwick? Uh, yeah, I think it to me it kind of leans on whether or not there's an RSS feed that goes with it. That to me feels like a podcast. Um, I'm just glad we're not calling it a Zoom cast, right? Ooh, that would be freaky, Alex. Yeah, I think I think that the uh, I think Apple. I don't think it really did a lot of suing, although it did send out some cease and desists. Uh, it was mostly defending its brand, you know. So you have to, if you think that something's stepping on your brand, you have you have to do something about it. You can't just say, "Oh, I'm going to let it go," or you'll or you'll lose your brand. So the um, so I think that that was Apple's issue, but I think that it does. I I think that we actually probably could consider ourselves a podcast, a daily podcast, and uh, and there has been some effort to to work on that. So stay tuned. Um, but I think that being able to, you know, if it's regular, it's got an RSS feed and it's going out, it probably fits into that, into that bill. So, um, yeah, stay tuned. As always, remember, please, that your questions drive this show. If you haven't put questions in, you are free to do that. You can do it very easily through the QR code sitting right there. Scan it with your phone. You can toss questions into the mix that way. Or you can use the regular Mukana interface. And after you put your questions in, take a moment, vote on the existing questions in the queue. Your votes do matter. The questions that are the most popular that rise up to the top, get we spend more time on them and kind of go into more depth and we get to them quicker. So your votes do always count. Next question. John Fisher, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Would Sony's new ILXR1 camera body with its three frame per second capability be an ideal solution for large scale photogrammetry? Alex. Uh, maybe. Uh, all I'll say is, what a camera. Like, like, I just went through the specs. I haven't seen it until you asked the question. And I was looking through it, and it, this looks amazing. So this is taking the what it looks like is this is a tiny little camera that would be a great little web camera. 
And uh, it has got, I believe, an interchangeable lens there. Um, and it, I, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I haven't seen, seen what that looks like yet. But it is, um, uh, it's got the full frame. It looks like the A7 sensor. So it's a full frame sensor uh, on this tiny little camera. We have been talking about needing this. Now I thought when someone did this, that they'd come back and say, well, it's only, um, uh, it's, it's only $500 or $800. This is $3,000. So this is not a, um, they're not, they're not biting into what they're, what they already had yet. It's interchangeable with the E-mount lenses. It's a full frame image sensor, uh, 61 megapixels. It, it, so 61 megapixels. So that tells me when they say full frame, 61 megapixels, that's the same as the A7S4 or R4 or whatever. So the, so the, um, so I think that they they took the A7 chip and put it inside of this camera. Uh, and it looks amazing. <laughs> like it's this tiny little camera. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not usually, you know, I don't usually get excited about little cameras, but this is, you know, we, we're always trying to find these tiny little cameras that we can use. And of course it's pricey. Um, but if you're trying to build something out with a bunch of little cameras and you want to, this is, I mean, you could build, I think if the autofocus is doing really well, you could build an unbelievable little kit that you could put into a backpack and a 1510 fly somewhere and shoot something that looks amazing. Um, you know, it's just these tiny little form factors. I, I'm going to try to get a hold of one to, to test. Um, I'll see if I can reach out to some folks because this looks um, like a stunning little camera. Uh, it really is built to be tied. You can, when you look at the images, um, it looks like it's built uh, to be tied to... Um, you know, tied into working systems. So like what they're really, what they're selling it as is something for drones. Although I think a lot of us will use it for other, want to use it for other things, but it, the way that the, it delivers, it has USB-C, but it also has um, a, what looks, I, I can't quite see from the photos. It looks like a little RS-232, is that, so, or just, just a block. It's just a cam block, or it's just a, uh, um, yeah, you can do focus, exp uh trigger exposure all from a and, a, and, a, and power from a little, um, there's a little control block on the, on the back. I don't know. It's, it's nifty. <laughs> it's got a, it's got like a, uh, and I'm sorry that I'm kind of gushing, but you know, it's the first time I've seen it. Um, it's a really exciting little camera. Uh, and I think that's a that, boatload of pixels. What's the output? What are the output options for that? No, well, it has HDMI out. HDMI mini out is what it looks like there. And then I thought I saw a picture of it where it had, it, there's like a service port on the other side that I think potentially, maybe it's just memory um, there. I wonder but, if it's uh, outputting 3840, 2160 or one of the big rasters like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure it will. I mean, no, I don't know. If, I don't know what it does as far as the um, yeah, resolution. I, yeah, I, I haven't been able to have it. It does movie recording. Um, it's, let's see here. It's got a memory, you know, it's an SD memory slot. And this is what happens when people get to watch us, uh, try to figure something out in real time <laughs> while we're watching here. But, but the, um, but I think that it's, it's a pretty, yeah, HDMI output includes 5994, 50, 2390, uh, 2398 at 3840 or at 1920 by 1080. Um, and it does a, an odd, oh, wow. So it does 3848 by 2168 at 60, 50, 30, 25, 24, raw 16-bit output from the HDMI, which I think only Sony knows how to catch when their cameras push that back out again. Um, and so... Uh, Does it nope. have a little SD micro card in it, something to record uh, on board? Yeah, it's, it's SD fascinating. Card. SD, oh, SD, it's SD, it's a UHS uh, 1 and 2 uh, compliant uh, SD card. Um, and so it, it will... Um, 
yeah, the internal recording is just the X A V C S and uh, and the oh. M- MP4 A, uh, four and H the H uh, HEVC as well. So form factor incredible. You have to know what you want out of it because. But, but I can say if if I if I had a spared no expense, huh, I'm just excited. Like if I had a spared no expense, uh, spared no expense kit that I was going to send out to people, this is has very instantly become that a small glow on the lower right side of Alex is his wallet catching fire. No, I don't have the. I, there's a new a new phone coming out next week, and that takes up my 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 budget for, discretionary. Yeah, my discretionary budget for September. So um, it's almost the same price <laughs> as this camera. So um, so anyway, the uh, uh, looks amazing. I'm. I'm going to assume that it has Sony's, um, and the big thing is, is it has a, um, you know, it also has an SDK, so you can really design what you want around it. I do think that for uh, photogrammetry is what John Fisher brought up. I think it could be a great photogrammetry because you have this tiny little camera that's designed from the ground up to be uh, remote controlled and managed. Um, so you could put an array of these. So the, the reason you might do this is if you want to capture uh, and this, you'd have to have some money to do the, what I'm about to say. But, you know, if, if you wanted to capture actors, you know, there's a, um, we, we had done a, I, I don't know if we did a second hour of this, but we, there's a company that used to be called Pixel Gun and they now are owned by 2K. But when we were using stuff with Pixel Gun, they had 150 Canon cameras that were, um, 150 Canon cameras that were all firing at the same time. And that's how they capture the basketball players for, you know, 2K games and so on and so forth. Those are using old uh, Canon cameras that are probably shooting one third the resolution of these and are a lot harder to control than this because this is built to be controlled remotely through a drone or through an array. So I, it's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting camera. Yeah. Interesting little beast. Uh, Paul, you had a thought? Yeah, I I love this camera. I'm looking at it now. It's it's got DCN. Paul, you need this camera. DCN. You need this camera. Huh? I absolutely need this camera. You need this camera. Don't buy the next three microphones. Just sell it. We can use it for Alex. We can can take this and and look at our ham radio towers. We can go up and look at at them and inspect our towers, see how our repeaters are doing. Just scrape off, just just scrape off the bottom hundred mics that you have, just the ones that you haven't used for a couple of years. I mean, like it's just such, you won't even notice that they're gone. The pile is so big. Just take those hundred mics. Sell Are you them talking on eBay. about the room that that's like? I would like to recommend that, that you that buy you the camera microphones. Is that what you Here, mean, Paul? Mm-hmm. Buy the camera, ship it to Alex. He'll set it up for you, and and he'll send it send it <laughs> to you. I'll never get it back. It'll never <laughs> come back. <laughs> I'll eventually send it back. Um, anyway, so you know, like. Uh, when, the, when another one comes out, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, pretty exciting camera. So we've we've talked. Uh, Courtney, do you have one last quick thought? You I was going to mention it has a mechanical shutter in it too, which is kind of unusual. So uh, a mechanical, mechanical and, so or, and electronic shutter. So either or. Oh, interesting. So not just so global. How's that possible? We just looked inside it. I don't think it has a mechanical shutter, does it? Well, Courtney must be reading specs here. It says here in the specs, mechanical shutter slash electronic shutter under shutter type. Courtney, you can see, you show the back of this thing? Do you it's see incredible. a mechanical shutter there, though? Look, look well, at maybe the back of this thing. Maybe it's held out of the way, just like, up. you know, when you hold a shutter open on a, on a standard DSLR. It holds I don't think it's open. deep enough to have a mechanical shutter. Well, it's not well, deep it, enough to have a mirror, a mirror yeah. reflex, but it's deep enough to have uh, a mechanical shutter. Okay. The back okay. of the way. So, yeah. 
Well, we are fascinated today, so I'm sure we'll be talking about this more as time goes on. We've uh, spent a good amount of time on it. Let's go to our next question. Moving on with Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Clubhouse is pivoting from live audio to group messaging. Is the headline this morning, but it isn't too little too late to save the platform. Preto, you still on Clubhouse doing a lot? Oh, man, I'm going to have to find my post from, from when they first launched that week saying that their short-lived life of Clubhouse right up there with <laughs> with uh, Periscope and Meerkat and all the other ones that have died. There's no way they're going to survive in a group messaging platform. No way. Paul Wallace. Man, I see a big comeback for Clubhouse. We, th- we wrote them <laughs> off. We thought... Clubhouse not happening. <laughs> now, now they're coming. Group messaging they're is coming. the killer app. <laughs> Look out, folks. They're coming. Alex Look out, WhatsApp. Yeah. Makes yeah. sense I mean, out of this. Fundamentally, there were, I, I felt like there were, you know, we experimented with Clubhouse here and we looked at it. I'm always like, I'll always jump into something and like, get started and take a look at it and kick it and kick the tires and you guys I never want to be I don't ever want to miss anything but it didn't take me very long to see what was missing in clubhouse and um, the first thing was their distribution method of how they wanted to spread was really creepy you know this whole like give us all your contacts and and everything else and you can invite them all or whatever it was a super creepy way to do it and so I think that that was part of it the second issue is without any real conversation management that wasn't in audio, it made for incredibly uncomfortable um, shows because you'd have people kind of bombing the show. You'd have people that were, when we applied what we, what we used for this show to Clubhouse, worked great. <laughs> like it was like, oh, this works. Um, but when they just try to do it where they have to cue each other completely in front of everyone, people just don't understand that that doesn't really work. Um, and and I think that that was that was those are the key things. It just and and then the other the the third thing is is that there are very few people that are good to listen to for a long period of time. Sometimes not even us, um, but, you know. But but I but I think that um, but that listening to people for hours, especially on their phones, um, everybody sounded horrible like all the time. And there's like background noise and there's all kinds of other things. And um, you know, having civilians not using real equipment talking for hours. It you know creates a, a level of cognitive load that makes it hard to keep coming back you know and so I think that only the most hardened listeners were willing to do that. Paul, do you have a quick comment before we move? Yeah, on? I think they're going to add video. I could be wrong. I'm not basing it on in anything, but I think they're going to add video sure. in there. I'm sure that'll fix everything. Good old video. Days. What could go wrong? <laughs> Oh Let's add a ton of bandwidth to a very low bandwidth messaging. <laughs> Remember how much fun we had on Clubhouse, Alex, we, when you got the whole group to go there? Remember uh, those days? We, we tried it a couple times, and I was like, oh, I can't do this. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on to our next, <laughs> our next question. Jeff Nilsson from Lake Burton, Georgia. One of my co-hosts is a freight dog pilot traveling the world. Need to come up with a lightweight kit, MacBook Air, Mix Pre 3, maybe an ear set, headset mic, Countryman DPA. Well, we've talked about this a lot, and it shouldn't be that that terribly difficult. I mean, we talk about MacBook Airs do have an amazing performance. The one downside to them is that the I.O. on the side of them is very limited. You have basically two ports and a power supply that doesn't eat up a port like on some of the old MacBooks. So in that respect, a little travel dock, OWC makes one that's bus-powered, uh, a brick for that would get your computer stuff taken care of. Uh, 
obviously you can use the cameras that are in them for basic stuff and you you have enough io with one of those little external docks and i'm thinking particularly i don't think i have it here i think it's in the voice booth but i have one of the little small owc docks that is bus powered connects via USB-C, and then gives you a variety of extra ports so that can really help you um I'm not sure that you entirely need something as big and complex as a MixPray 3, although it's a fabulous unit. Uh, headset ear set will make it a lot easier to get the signal-to-noise ratio out of a microphone. Alex, you do this all the time. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I was trying to find my photo of the, the of my most recent kit um, that I took to Vegas because I'm starting to settle in. I would definitely recommend that new Sony that we just saw because <laughs> it was great. Um, anyway, uh, but... Uh, the, uh, you know, I'm, so my rule is, is that everything, um, j- everything except for the laptop, my rule is, is, is it has to fit into the, um, into a 1510. So you have to decide if that's light enough for you. Uh, it might not be light enough. And if it isn't, then that's not going to, you know, be effective. Uh, I'll show you what I have right now. Um, this is, this is the current, the current kit that I'm using at the moment. Um, is this. Now, what, what you see here is, and this all fits into a 1510 except for the iPad and the laptop. Um, so everything else goes in 1510. These are two little stands that I use, the light stands. I don't know. They're not anything special. I do have little ball heads on the top of both of them. Um, so those allow me to kind of tilt those lights. So um, that that turns out to be pretty effective. These are Nanlite. Um, they're Nanlite 6Cs, Pavotube 6Cs. Um, they're battery operated. I have them wired, as you can see. Um, they all go into that, you know, one of those uh, USB. Uh, actually, funny thing about the Pavotubes is they do not like, you have to plug them into a USB-A to USB-C. If they get too much power, they just don't take power. So they just ignore that. Um, so uh, so that, so this is a, you know, a, um, uh, I have a, a small um, extension cord with a, that on the end of it, it has the old 2.4 watt power, you know, at the end of the, of just a regular um, uh, power strip. Um, and then, so that power strip's in there. I, I have this, um, this is one USB-C, uh, USB-C power supply. It's different than the ones I showed you before, and it's made by, hold on, uh, i5 Creative is the one that I have in my kit. Um, and so that powers, that kind of carefully powers all the things that it needs to. Um, so this is my 13 or 14-inch laptop. That's an old Intel, um, but the laptop is useful for this. I thought I'd go with something like a uh, Mac mini, but this works really well. This is a, a stand, um, and I can't remember the name of it. I, we've talked about it in the past. Uh, it's kind of, oh, Brocoon, B-R-O-C-O-O-N. And it, it, it folds into almost nothing, to almost the thickness of the metal, and then unfolds, and it's very stiff, so it really is easy to put up there. Um, I have a small tripod here. Um, I think I actually have that here. Hold on, this is it. Hold on. Going on my little trip. Uh, this is the it's the Manfrotto B Free. So it's it's small. The key is, is that it fits carefully into the into that system. So the Manf- Manfrotto B Free is Alex, the tripod. If you're holding right it up, there. we're seeing your screen. No, 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 no I know. I know. Okay, I'm just, I just I need to find it so I could read it. Um, Manfrotto B Free is is in the back here, and then this is the Sony um, FX30 that I'm using with a. Uh, that's a 35 mil uh, 1.4 lens. That's the most important, most not I don't know if it's important, but the most expensive part of the system um, to have there. But I will tell you, in um, 
in hotels, having really short depth of field is really nice because, and you may think that, oh, I just need a little webcam, but you need a, you need that short depth of field more on the road than you need it um, when you're in, at home because you just want to blur out that background naturally if you can. So, so anyway, so that's that. I put a, it's got a rig on it. Um, it's got a, um, you know, one of the, the uh, small rig. Uh, cages on it to kind of let me attach it as I like. I've got a little, um, I've got a, a switcher here. This is the little Blackmagic Mini. Um, the reason I use that is so that I can put up a still if I want to not be seen. So it's just a nice hardware, like I want to just tap away. I don't want, I don't like turning off my, uh, turning off my camera. I, I'd rather just give you a still. And oftentimes what I do is I, is when I get to the hotel, um, I will save that still into the switcher so that I can, you know, I'll take a still from the switcher, save it into there so that I can, um, uh, you know, appear and disappear magically. It's a, it's a fun little um, trick. Uh, anyway, this is the noise. This is the sound devices, um, uh, sound devices mix pre three with noise assist. The noise assist again, super valuable when in hotels. <laughs> like 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 I I would not travel with anything else because being able to remove all of that all of the air conditioning that's AC is the real problem that you get into on the road, and being able to remove the AC, um, it's it is it's just way better than everybody else's. Like I I know everyone thinks that they have something better or that something that's as good. It's twice as good as the next next thing period. Like I've tested all of these. I've worked through them all. Um, using a DPA um, uh, 4066 um, that goes into that. Um, so what I do is I, I join here and the only reason I'm using the iPad is because we have this question system that I have to kind of manage and look at and so on and so forth. So uh, I found that trying to do that on the same page created a lot of confusion there. That's my travel kit. All of that except for the laptop and the iPad which go into my backpack. They go into the little area against your back because they're so small. They'll, they'll just fit into that area, that little zip-up area on a Rush 24 that is actually behind the main cavity. Keeps them safe, keeps them, you know, the weight distribution works better when I'm traveling. Um, so those go into there, but everything, all of this other stuff will fit just barely <laughs> into a 1510. Um, and I can, and that's my that's my travel kit. And so I, 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 I'm not, yeah, that's when I leave and I'm, I think I'm going to be on the show, that's what I'm, that's what I'm taking. It's, uh, definitely, there's very few things that I would change at this point. I think I've settled into it. This takes me exactly, I time it, it takes me exactly eight minutes to put together. So what you're seeing here will take me from the time I open the case. I'm like the, well, if you've ever seen the, the, the equalizer or whatever, when I, when I do this system, I literally like hit a stopwatch and then I start going and I put it all together and then I hit the stopwatch and it's it's plus or minus eight minutes. Uh, it's like 10 seconds to eight minutes, maybe because I slow down. I, I, don't know, I don't worry about it if I feel like I'm making time, but but um, but I felt like eight minutes was a good uh, a good time for it to be set up. Paul, you have a quick comment? Yeah, um, the Brocoon's pretty cool. They also make a version of that that has rotating base and telescoping. And I would go with the Neewers that Courtney recommended the other day. They're pretty good uh, lights. It's just, it just whether you can fit it into the, for me, it has to fit into the 1510. Like that's the, the like it, it can't, nothing can fit, all, every cable, every, the camera, the lens, everything. It, it has to fit into that. Otherwise, I, it, it was causing chaos for me to try to find other ways to do that. 
Let's, oh, I do have to note that again, we are still open for questions uh, because of this voting system. Even if you get a question in late, sometimes it catches fire with those who are uh, viewing the show and gets voted way up. So if you have a chance to put more questions in, please do so. We're looking forward to the top of the hour and our special guest for our second hour on HDR. So uh, that's coming up. And by the way, if you are, um, uh, if you're watching the show later, a lot of, about 90% of our viewers watch it later. <laughs> so um, if you're watching this later, that QR code that you saw, that works 24-7. So if you see that and you think of a question any time of the day, what happens is we get up in the morning, we look at the, we look at the questions that are coming in from the QR code, and then we promote them to the show. So you can, um, uh, you can throw those questions in now. Nowadays, you can throw them in 24-7. So uh, if you have a question, save that URL. Um, the best time to ask the question is when you think of it. So if you haven't figured, you can take, you know, you, even, even if you figure out the answer between the time you asked it and the show, it's still useful for everybody else. (laughs) So if you have a question about something that pops into your head, just throw it in, just throw it in there. And, um, and, and that's the, the, I, I have a tendency to write when I work, I, I have notes open and I write questions. I don't necessarily try to figure them out, but if they pop into my head, like, I don't understand that, I write them. And then when I, at lunch, when I'm eating soup, oftentimes I, I open up those questions and I start doing research on them. Um, and, uh, but I think that, you know, you can use us for that. <laughs> we, can, we can work on them for you. So uh, go ahead and throw those questions in whenever you think of them. All righty, let's go to the next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana is in with a QR code question. With all the changes to YouTube, what is the best growth strategies currently for new channels, shorts live or long form? Courtney, start us off. I would think long form. If you do a one a week long form, that's maybe an hour, half hour to two hours, somewhere in there. Uh, it's better for monetization if it's, especially if it's a compelling topic, uh, and you have good, or you have good guests, and you can put some time in and produce it. It's not just like a live one-off, and um, uh, that way it has a longer, uh, a longer running time, more ways to monetize, more commercials that YouTube can throw into it, and uh, plus you can still divide it up if they're interesting segments that are separable from the main program you can publish a lot of pieces of it as shorts so you can double monetize on it but i think as long as you have a compelling broad uh, compelling subject matter a long form once a week is probably the way to go uh paul wallace yeah i think uh as far as office hours goes i think geekazine jeffrey powers has a, a great strategy he reviews tech tech products he's got twenty five thousand subscribers he got this. He gets cool stuff. Look at the cool stuff he gets all the time. He just got all that about swag. Tail air. <laughs> what a lucky guy, I'll tell you. Chris Fenwick. Chris, I think the best strategy for growth is just be good. Like, like really. I think a lot of times we we spend more time trying to gamify the system or figure out what the game is, and less time just concentrating on having a, a good presentation. I'll, I'll avoid the word content. It just bugs me. But have a good presentation. Also, I find that the YouTube channels that I'm drawn to have, I, I would say 50% of what I like about them is the personality of the people. I've been trying, as you know, I've been trying to learn all this home kit stuff and I've been watching a lot of stuff on YouTube. And there's one guy in particular, I won't call him out, but he's got pretty good information. 
I just don't like him. Like, like I don't like the guy. I, don't, I wouldn't want to sit down and have dinner with him. I wouldn't want to hang out with him. And it, what it means is I'll see one of his videos. And I was like, yeah, that might have the answer that I'm looking for. But I don't want to hang out with this guy for eight minutes while I learn the answer. So I think personality, YouTube is a, is a medium that relies very heavily on personality. <laughs> uh, and, and, and there's no science to that. You, you know, I, I don't know. I, I consider myself to have PDD, which is a personality deficiency disorder. So who knows? Chris, uh, I'm, I'm sorry you don't like my YouTube channel, Chris. I'm, I apologize. Save I us. guess I guess I have to be the curmudgeon. So out of the out of the millions of creators on YouTube, the chance of being successful is the same chance you have of of joining the being the professional in the NFL. I would sell insurance or Amway, Chris. That would be my recommendation. <laughs> no, not Amway. Can you do it on YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. There, there's the brilliance. Amway on YouTube. I'm swearing you'll get rich just in weeks. Uh, let's move on to our next question. And it's from Derek Alexander in Riverside, California. I've heard about the Office Hours radio app for iOS, but for the life of me, I could never find a way to download and install it. Is there an easier way to get it? Uh, I'm not sure. And that is an Alex question. And Alex is getting ready to bring our guests in here for the moment. Uh, he's the only one qualified to talk about kind of future things. John Preto, do you have any any thoughts about this? Yeah, the radio app's currently on Test Flight, which is Apple's uh, developer ah. app application. It's not officially available in the App Store yet. So hopefully soon. That's right. And if you're not in the test flight system, it's pretty, uh, it's not super complex, but it's a design, it's a thing designed for beta software to let people who are beta testing it get into the Apple system and, and put in uh, suggestions and, and find bugs and things like that. So there's no guarantee it's going to work smoothly at this point. Paul Wallace? Yeah, JP said what I was going to say test flight, get test flight, and then you can get the app. You can't get it through the regular app channels. Yeah, there you go. Uh, let's go to the next question. Gregory Wheeler in Ellicott City asked, has anyone used an AI tool to shorten a video with dialogue? John Preto, do you do this? So when Descript first came out, we spent a lot of time testing it out and using it. And I'll put Chris Fenwick or Bill Davis against anybody on Descript all day long. We just found it count counterproductive a good editor on a tool and and when they bring those features in like they have on black magic and and to final cut it's going to be a great tool for for mature editors like bill and chris so editing via text editor method like they've done now in black magic and i'm sure it's going to show up in final cut one day when they edit it but uh descript is the tool of choice out there for doing it that way right now chris fenwick uh, so, John, to be clear, isn't Descript the one where you're actually looking at the text and you're copying and pasting it? I don't think that's what the... What is the tool that Jonas uses where he dumps in a video and it cuts it up, makes it vertical, puts all the, the text call-outs and stuff? What's that tool called? Um, that one's... There's a bunch of those out there. The CapCut is the one that the kids use. Which What's it called? CapCut. See, I think that's the what they're talking about. Gamers tend to use AI. that for their Overwatch I, I think that's videos. what they're talking about, AI tools and not Descript. Descript's a different category. It's text-based editing. Paul Wallace, Text-based wanna... video editing. Wait, yeah, what, it's, what, it's one only last for thing people. before we go to Paul. 
one last thing. Sorry, Paul. What yeah. I was going to say, Bill, and I think you would agree, have you? if you've watched these things where it's like a social media creation tool where you dump in a big video and it just chops it up. And I don't know how it's doing it. But when I watch those videos, John, in particular, they, they always need a little help. They always need a yeah. little help. It's like that word... That word is phonetically sounds right, but it's it's actually the wrong word. Or uh, that's that's chopped off just a little bit. It always needs a little help. And if those tools created, you know, a premiere or a Final Cut timeline, nobody really uses Resolve. The one we uh, use for short is called Opus. That's the one that that's the is one that, that what Jack, Jonas uses. That's Jack the one Jack, Jack uses. Yes. Okay, Opus. so Jack uh, Jack is a, a friend of ours, and his YouTube channel is called Overland Channel. And he'll take the long videos that we do, and then he runs them through Opus to make little shorts. And they, I, he, it does it fast, and it doesn't, and you don't have to like belabor over it. And I look at it, and I go, "That's a half day to cut that," and he's doing this stuff in minutes. So in that regard, it's awesome. But the end result is, it just needs, it needs a little polish. And if I could go in and like fiddle that stuff, it'd be really awesome. But I don't see, I, I'll be honest, I haven't looked at the UI, but I don't think it gives you the ability to take its edit and put it into a timeline and then fiddle it. That's my complaint about this stuff. Sorry. That's right, Paul, I was coming to you. Yeah, it's just kind of like for noobs like me, you know, I, I use uh, Descript to do quick editing, but I'm learning Resolve and I take it from what I've heard from Chris and others that if you're just starting out, Resolve's the way to go, not Final Cut. But for Chris, who's evolved into a masterful exact videographer. Opposite, exact opposite. Resolve is very hard to learn. I, I don't know if you were being facetious, but Resolve No, I'm learning is, it. I'm learning it, Chris. Okay, but, but what you said, I don't know if you were trying to be sarcastic. But, no, I wasn't. I wasn't okay, trying to be th sarcastic. Then let me correct you. If you're just learning editing, don't start in Resolve. It's too difficult. If you're literally just learning editing, I would use like iMovie and then Final Cut. But Re Resolve is a much more advanced tool. So I just want to clarify because I couldn't tell if you were being sarcastic or not. Would, would it be better to spend more time learning Resolve or less time learning something like Final Cut if you're just starting out? There's two things you have to learn when you're editing. One, why you make edits. And two, how to make the edit. Okay. And, and so why you make the edit is, is this going to make this content easier to, to absorb or, or to, to, you know, get through? Um, if I'm doing something more dramatic, you know, does this close-up help or not? Does this reaction shot help or not? That's the why you edit. But the how-to is particular among different apps. There, there's obviously there's similarities of how you bring in B-roll, et cetera, et cetera. But... In terms of just, I want to take, you know, 30 minutes of footage that I shot at this event and cut it down to a highlights reel, I would, ab and, and you know nothing about editing, I would definitely steer somebody away from Resolve and go to something simpler like Final Cut. Paul, do you have a quick question before we move on? 
Oh, he covered or, it. He covered, he covered it. it. Okay, great answer, great. Chris. Good job. I'm just going to, the only thing I'll say, and I want to move on quickly because we've got a couple more questions to get to before we run out of time here. Uh, to me, all these things tend to be in the 99% category. And what I mean by that is that the same reason that uh, auto text generation out of uh, soundtracks on video, you know, when you send them out for captioning and things like that, you get about 99% accuracy, which sounds great at the beginning. But that 1% means that there's going to be a miss understood word maybe out of every hundred words. So the amount of time you have to take to go back and tweak things, and I think this is what Chris is talking to, anything that automates a system that is complex at its heart, like editing, is going to have that instability in that last 1% that to get it really right is going to take a human being looking at it and fixing it. Now, not all content needs to be 100% right to be useful. So there are circumstances certainly where to use this. But I just don't think AI is going to get that last 1% quicker than we, as we imagine somewhere. Let's uh, head to, uh, do we have time for one more? No, I don't think we are because we're on a tight time schedule today. And I've got a few things to talk about before that. So... Let me talk about them. The first thing I wanted to know is that after uh, some weeks off, our friend Al Wilson Spiro is coming back for an Isadora Lab today. It starts one hour after this show is done. And if you haven't been involved in that, Isadora is a fabulous program. It runs a big chunk of what's going on in this show right here. And it is something that comes out of show control. And uh, if you're really interested in ever doing something that has a kind of the same feel uh, and is as automated as um, is the the office hours show every day. Learning Isadora is an ex exceptional place to start. It is one of the core technologies that we use here. So that's one hour after the show today at 10 o'clock, L. Wilson Sparrow. I think it's in after hours. If not, look on the website and you'll find the links to it if you're interested in Learning Isadora. Fabulous tool. Tomorrow, we're continuing our brainstorming sessions. Uh, this is our quarterly call to everyone who's interested in the show to put your ideas into the mix of topics we'll be covering in future shows. Our brainstorming focus tomorrow is the Office Hours website. So we are looking for your ideas on how it works, what it needs, uh, how it can best support the show over the next quarter. So if you're interested in website, if you're, if you're skilled at websites and just want to put in your suggestions for the web team as to what would be a good idea for improvements to our website. That's tomorrow in our show's second hour. Um, that is an overall look and a discussion of the Office Hours website. Tomorrow, Saturday, September 9th, we'll have our regular general question and answer for the first hour. Our second hour is going to be hosted, as usual, by Laura Thompson. If you haven't seen more Laura Thompson shows, they're fabulous. She's continuing her focus on disability inclusion, basically how we can continue to do our best to meet the office hours mission statement, which has always been about creating a global community where no one is left out of the conversation. So that is Saturday in our second hour. First hour is always just traditional question and answer. And for those of you, speaking of questions and answer, uh, if you haven't been in the Makana system, this is getting increasingly uh, a big part of the show. Even with the QR code instant, I can pop a question in. The community in Mukana is incredibly active. And every day during the show, people come and add their questions and discuss those questions. It is a fabulous community. I, one of the big disappointments I have is that because I've got so much to do, particularly when I'm hosting or something like that, I don't get to spend as much time as I used to uh, hanging out with the community in 
that Mukana section of the show. And it's just very, very, very valuable. So that is something else that you can do. We're about to make our transition into the top of the hour stuff. Uh, IBC, the International Broadcast Conference Show, is in Amsterdam is coming up next week. That's going to happen September 15th to 18th at the Rye in Amsterdam. We'll have a live team for coverage there. Let's see a preview. European members of the Office House community are heading to the International Broadcast Convention in the Rye Center in Amsterdam to bring you the latest broadcast trends and technologies to Office Hours Live from the exhibition floor. Join us on the 16th of September for the latest trends in broadcasting technologies and this year we are especially focusing on finding solutions for your production problems. Let us know what you would like to see, what problems you need to be solved over on officehours.global slash IBC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the second hour. And we're very excited to have uh, our, our continue our conversation about HDR and LUTs and color space and all the things that we've, that we've been doing, uh, that we've been working on here, of course, presenting today. We've got Chris Seeger and Pablo Garcia. Uh, Chris, of course, is NBC Universal's Director of Advanced Content Production and has been focused on live UHD and HDR uh, production for the last seven years. Uh, and um, Pablo Garcia is the Managing Director of Chromarama, and uh, he has been a workflow, HDR workflow consultant for the FIFA, the Olympics, you know, little shows like that, uh, and many of them over the last eight years. Um, so we're really excited to have them. And uh, the, the best thing to do is to start to listen. They're going to talk about a lot of things that some of you might not know, <laughs> might not be, even be familiar with, might not even know where uh, where that comes from. And the, the, the best way to handle this is we have the world experts in HDR right now in workflow, uh, this there is no better time to ask questions. So as you're listening to them, go you know they're going to show a couple slides. They're going to talk about a couple key things. I think Pablo's got a little demo for us. Um, and as we go through that, uh, you want to throw those questions in as, as as best you can. Of course, you can use the QR code or you can go to askofficehours. Uh, uh, dot com. So just askofficehours.com or you can use the QR code that you've seen in the past. We might, we might put it up again. Um, and uh, Or you can just be in Makana and ask those questions as well. So go ahead and um, get those questions rolling. And I'm going to go ahead and throw it off to Chris to kind of pick up where we left off from our last episode. Go ahead, take it away, Chris. Thanks very much, Alex, and hopefully everybody can hear me. I'm going to share out a presentation, um, and while I do that, I want to also mention uh, one more uh, uh, group that uses the Chromarama LUTs, and that's NBC. So all of our LUTs that we share publicly um, come from uh, the Chromarama system. So um, I, first off, I wanted to start with, you know, what is, what is a LUT? Because before we can talk about the future, we want to understand what, what a LUT is. So if we look at a 3D cube, which hopefully everybody can see, this represents light and color um, and the sampling points within um, that, that 3D cube. And when we apply a LUT, what we're doing is, and hopefully, hopefully you'll see the animation, we're changing the points. Um, those sample points to a new position. So we're converting the light and color from this unity position. And, and, and would it be accurate? I mean, I think a lot of us know how to use curves. You know, those are 2D curves there. Would it be accurate to say that, that what we're doing is representing a transform between the input and the output in the RGB, where the RGB rep in a cube represents uh, 
uh, is represented in XYZ. Is that is that a is that an accurate? I think we can represent it in in many different uh, uh, um, uh, uh, rep- color representations. Um, right. But, uh, yes. Yeah, but basically, basically that's uh, that is correct. What you just said is uh, there's a set of input and output uh, values that. Much like when we have a in Photoshop, we have a curve, and we we see the curve there, and it's it's saying this is what's coming in, this is what's going out on a you know on a given channel or on all the channels. And so, I, a lot of times when I'm thinking about that cube, I'm thinking about it when you look at the LUT itself. I mean, I don't know if you have that, but the, the LUT is just a text file. <laughs> it just says when you come in here, go out this way. You know, this is the this is I'm going to add this or subtract this from what what's uh, going in and out. Yeah, and the reason why I said, you know, kind of is because within that 3D cube, that LUT, there's actually mathematics that, that are um, reinterpolating uh, some Got of it. the uh, representations uh, that process the color and light. Um, and in some ways, you can achieve better results by, by uh, using a different uh, container for that processing. Got it. Um, so... Skipping over here, um, we've got a number of uh, different formats. Um, within the Cubelet format, there are different Adobe and DaVinci versions and probably quite a few others that that uh, Pablo knows much better than I do. The hard part about these Cubelets is that in the header, they uh, really haven't standardized um, the parameters that are described. So, you know, we've got these raw numbers that are uh, represented in a text file, as you mentioned before. Um, but the LUT doesn't really know the color space that's going in, um, the range that might be represented, and a number of other things. So AMP has tried to answer that um, by uh, um, introducing a new format called CLF, the Common LUT Format, and it's actually going into a SMPTE project so we can further standardize it, maybe move it into ITU. Uh, hopefully that, that will happen over time. Um, and then we'll have a, a, um, a LUT format um, that is less prone to error. So, you know, some of these uh, things that we're trying to describe in that header um, is are the color space, the signal range, uh, the matrix coefficients, which allow us to uh, convert from YCBCR color representation to RGB. Um, and we've got to do that for input and output. And, and so, and, and just to kind of back up a little bit there. So, the, so the, so the header right now doesn't have that. It's making the assumption. It's just assumes that I've got 709 and I'm going into, into HLG or HDR 10 or, or whatever that transform is, or I'm, I'm coming in from a raw format from a black magic camera or a Sony, Sony S log. And I'm just making that conversion, but it's just the math and it doesn't know, I mean, in the name it might tell us, but it doesn't, it doesn't know these things um, that, that are embedded into the header. Is that correct? In most cases, yes. Uh, the Adobe format has has a, a domain range control, I think. Um, but these are manufacturer specific. They're not truly standardized. Right. And what we really have to get to is a point where we have true standards from standards organizations. Um, and you know, there are other things like the uh, t- uh, the interpolation mode that's very, very important, specifically to our LUTs. So in that cube LUT format, you saw a bunch of points represented, but there are spaces in between where there are uh, light and color that uh, that isn't really described. So those in between values have to be interpolated. And these different uh, methods of interpolation are um, you know worse to better. 
Um, we require a tetrahedral interpolation so that we can use a 33-point LUT, which isn't too complicated uh, for processing um, uh, in real time in many devices. And that's the essential uh, thing that we really need. We need to be able to put it in a hardware device, not just software uh, convert it uh, in post. We need to be able to handle it uh, real time and get good results. So that's and, what. And how is it are, with with a tetrahedral connection? Is it is it how it looks at the other points around it and and basically build those curves between them to to make that that actually work within the cube? Yeah, and some of that is going to go way beyond my knowledge base, but I think there's like a triangular. Uh, format of interpolation, um, if I remember correctly. Um, but there's a paper uh, from probably about five years ago in SIMPTE that goes into um, all of those interpolation modes in detail and actually qualifies the amount of error between each of them uh, based on their point size. Right. Um, uh, but it's it's a very deep subject. Yeah, absolutely. So um, in this... Um, uh, document, the technical document H.273, it describes a number of these parameters. So, you know, the goal in, in CLF is to reference the standard and actually quite specifically document it so that um, uh, we uh, reference backwards to uh, documents that really mean something. So that's, you know, the hope for CLF. And again, to avoid error that might happen um, in in the production, which is, you know, you have to be very, very careful right now to avoid error um, and and often hard code your LUT conversion to a device so that, um, you know, because you've got so many cameras, so many different sources, you want to make sure that you do things right. Well, and, and again, at a commercial level, we're really dealing with in, in a film level, we can get away with a lot, you know, like we're, you know, we can, you know, we can, it's the artistic intent, so to speak. But the artistic intent of our part of our sponsors is that this yellow has to be this yellow and this red has to be this red, right? I mean, that's the, the challenge is it has to look exactly the way they expect it at all levels. And that's the goal of a single master production. To your point, we want to preserve the look of the HDR camera as much as possible into the SDR domain, which doesn't have the same capabilities, but you want to preserve the look as, as closely as possible. Right. And so when we look at those color spaces on the left-hand side, we've got uh, BT2020, P3, and BT709. And this is an, an uh, XY uh, uh, plot um, of colored. It doesn't include the light, so it's not the 3D representation that includes light. But you can see the different sizes and uh, range of wavelengths that you can describe um, between BT709, which is a much smaller triangle, and the larger tri triangle for BT2020. So when you convert from HDR to SDR you've, and from wide color gamut to the BT709 color space, you have to throw out something. So how are you going to preserve your look while you throw out some information? Um, so a lot of the plots that you see uh, are using an older CIE 1931 um, uh, uh, representation. Uh, we uh, use B uh, CIE 1976 beca because it's a much more uniform uh, space. So you can see the division between blue, green, and red is a little bit better, where CIE 1931 has very little blue. And so. And 
And the and just to be clear, the the color that it, these are sitting on top of is what we can see as as humans, right? I mean, that's that that's kind of the representation of that. And I think BT twenty twenty gets very close to to the range that 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 right. we can see. Um, and the UV plot of nineteen seventy six is is trying to represent our capabilities. But uh, Pablo may have some additional uh, information there. Um. Yeah, because I've been teaching uh, this bit for quite some time. So what we see in here is uh, is a bended straight line of all the wavelengths that are um, transmitted to the brain by the human visual system. Right. That's that curve that you see on the top. That's you can uh, that's the nanometers of the wavelengths, and then we have that straight line in the bottom which is the line of uh, magentas or which is an imaginary line because you cannot, there's no magenta wavelength. Actually, we could say that it's a, a mistake of the brain, could be the lack of green or something. You cannot go back because it's actually in a straight, it's just, it's just wavelength. So it's, uh, you cannot go back to, from red to blue. Right. So that's what we are seeing here. That's all those numbers that you can see on the top. And it's a 2D representation, as uh, Chris has said. Uh, we have the 1931, which is the most extended in tools and so on. But as Chris mentioned, is not the most uniform. And that's a bit of a more complex uh, topic. And then in 1976, they did um, another try. Still not perfect, but it's slightly more uniform in how the perception of colors um, are distributed. So then we go on using the 1976 representation, and we're looking at BT-709 in this inner triangle and BT-2020 um, on the larger triangle. And you can see the position of uh, red, green, and blue. These are the primaries for each of those color spaces are in a different location. So if you were to convert um, from uh, BT-2020 uh, down to BT709, what is the strategy you're going to use to uh, right. do that conversion? It's, it's, not a, it's not a linear scale. Like you can't just scale it up or bring it down. You have to figure out how to curve with it, right? Correct. And that's something that Chromarama does really well in, in their Orion engine. Um, because, you know, what we wanted to do in our LUT was we wanted to preserve the colors while they're within the BT-709 triangle, and then skew over to BT-2020 so that we could fully saturate or try and fully saturate our colors. So we get to the edge of the triangle, and then we skew over to BT-2020 so we can go to the end of that primary. And, you know, the, the point here is that if you don't do that, you're going to clip your color and lose some of that saturation. And that's and what we see in yeah. some of the LUTs right now. That's what we see. That's a really big problem. It's a problem we're dealing with right now. It's going, getting back to SDR um, and getting at, you know, to, to, to do that is that it looks a little drab <laughs> because yeah. it's when it comes out, comes from an HDR source. But the good news is with this strategy of skewing over, we can get much closer and preserve much more the look um, of the original master image, which is HDR. So um, we went into this the last time, so I think this is probably where I'm going where, where I'm going to end. After you do your um, conversion, after you uh, use your LUTs, you want to make sure they're working. 
So we strongly encourage people to use this objective metric defined in BT 2124, an ITU standard, where we move all of these color representations and formats into one large container so we can plot them and actually figure out if we're, our conversion is accurate uh, or what the strategy is. Um, so uh, we've we've uh, designed some tools, incorporate, commissioned them into a software tool within Voya, a plugin called the HDR Chromometric plugin. And I encourage you to uh, take a look and uh, use it in your productions. And with that, I I hand off to um, Mr. Garcia. Well, thanks, Chris. Um, let me pass on to my presentation. I hope you can all see, um, yeah, we see it great. that great. bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so as Chris, uh, mentioned before the, the Orion convert basically came out out of a necessity for my company. We were preparing for the Tokyo Olympics. And um, there was a need to use lookup tables because um, all color converters in the market were tested and none of them was given the exact result or the same result as each other. So that was a huge problem of consistency. We knew that we were gonna find uh, OV trucks coming from all around the world. I think we had nearly 80% of all the UHD, HDR capable trucks worldwide. Um, each one of them with their own um, equipment. So what was the only way of uh, standardizing the way we converted? A look at table. I'm coming from the film background. I've been a color supervisor on Netflix shows, um, Amazon's Universal Pictures and so on for many years. And um, while I was working at Sony, um, basically, that's what we've been doing for multiple deliverables and uh, keeping the uh, creative intent, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we didn't have the tools. There was no tools really to create that. So we had our piece, uh, some maths that um, that we were using on an everyday life uh, with film productions. So we adopted all the ITU standardizations within those maths. And that's how the Orion Convert algorithm uh, came in. I'm a colorist by trade, so I needed more highlight control, which is what I'm going to show you in a moment. So in introduction to the Orion Convert, the Orion uh, algorithm takes a novel three-step approach to, to HDR, uh, HDR to HDR or HDR to HDR conversions with a simple and intuitive set of user controls. Um, for me, it was essential that it has to be easy to use, not for myself, thinking on a future time that maybe it's going to be a commercial. I've been using uh, the color converters from Sony and for many other manufacturers in that extremely complex to use. And uh, I'm used of uh, using a set of tools that I don't take my eyes out of the picture I'm modifying. So if I have to navigate 25 pages through a menu, I've lost the reference. I don't know what I'm doing and I don't even know why I'm in that page. So I need to go back, start again. And it's a massive loss of time quality and everything so it has to be and i user. think that that's 
that's one of the real challenges with uh, live in general is that I think a lot of folks, when I came out of film, you know, I worked at like, Lucasfilm and we were working on film and we have time, <laughs> like we yeah. have time to like, well, let's spend another couple of days on it. And, you know, uh, live is such a pencils down operation where, you know, we have a lot of moving parts. They're all going to get added really quickly. And then yeah. you have to, they have to execute to, to your point. Uh, I think a lot of times when software developers develop interfaces, they're not, they, they need to spend some time in a truck. <laughs> like they need to spend some time in a live environment where Indeed. they get to understand that, like, I know that that, that window is there, but we don't have time to get to it, you know, when we're, when we need it. And so, uh, it's really, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really valuable. Exactly. You, you know, like, I, I would do the same with colorists. I would send them to set. I spend a lot of time yeah. on set, uh, with, uh, big cinematographs and, and then you understand a lot. You go back yeah. to the dark room and, uh, you understand a lot of what actually happened with that picture, how to modify that picture, what is the intention with it and so on. Um, so uh, the intent is that these controls should be adjusted continuously through a live uh, production. You will not be doing that on a shoot-by-shoot -shoot basis as I, I would be normally doing in a in a color correction. Um, but that you are capable of modifying those type of conversions according to the light conditions of the show. Um, so that's the main purpose of the Orion Convert algorithm is that it's fully parametric. Um, so Orion Convert offers necessary tools for broadcasters to create and deliver the HDR and SDR con the content that consumers expect by providing the critical tools required to set up the conversions for your production. This is a snake bit, um, kind of a small look at the, what I'm going to present you afterwards. So there's a unique two stage knee, um, that we offer, which is the pre-compression, uh, in, in this case, the conversion is HLG to SDR. Um, the pre-compression it's in the HDR space and the post-compression is in the SDR space. And, uh, this is basically the part of technology that we implemented. Coming you, from my colorist part perspective. Can you can you describe pre-compression, uh, you know, um, pre-compression and post-compression of the color? Sure. Um, where I can show you after, I'll show you in a, in a moment. I have uh, okay. actually a small demo, but the the my problem was that the the core of the of the conversion. So actually, this has a logical uh, process. It's going from top to bottom. If you think on the layers, so the input would be on the um, top of the GUI, and the picture will be coming down to the uh, to the bottom of the GUI. So the pre-compression will be accommodating the highlights before the ITU recommended maths. We are not reinventing the wheel. We are we are using ITU based. Uh, mathematics. So all that block that you see conversion, that's all ITU uh, standardized uh, conversions. So by accommodating the highlights before the conversion, you can uh, get a better conversion out of it. Now, are you still having something else converted or are you basically, this is the way you're getting it into the SDR space in this tool from the HDR or are you yeah. still, is that is that kind of your with more nuanced tools before you hand it off to something that's a little bit more coarse? Depending on the direction of the conversion, it will be pre-compression or pre-expansion and post-expansion as well. So right. either you can compress the highlights or you can expand the highlights. And because of the way that it's been developed, uh, this could act as a pseudo gamut mapping as well. Because right. depending on where are you using the compression, you will be... Um, 
keeping more or less chrominance in your highlights, which is also very depending on the on the day. And I cannot imagine, you know what? I'm going to just pass onto the onto the actual um, to the actual demo. Give me a second to come out of here. Um, I'll take this. Now, is this, gen- is this generating a LUT from here, or is it? This tool is the one that we use to generate the LUTs. Right. Right now, it has evolved and is now a piece of software. It's going to be a plugin as well available in um, um, Premiere, Avid, Resolve, and it's an SDK, which is what you can see right now. This is uh, my actual uh, my screen. And um, if you can see also the, the waveform app, uh, by the way, thanks to EBU for this uh, picture here. <laughs> so uh, what you can you see know, those here... Pictures, those pictures take a long time to put together. I've worked on a couple of those photos. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's like, people think, well, we just threw a bunch of stuff out there. That is like, for us at least, the ones that I've done for a company that I worked with that was doing HDR, was, it was like weeks of meetings <laughs> and oh, yeah, yeah. things and talking about well we need this and we need this oh yeah 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 we're gonna need some reflection and we need these this these colors and we need to have it you know and yeah. it's uh it's, it's it's a big deal so it, it's it is it's a great i i will say as someone who's built some of these uh this is a great great image yeah i actually my, my days at sony and pinewood studios i spent five years of my life just doing this and then sitting with cinematographers and analyzing what they want and then doing costume tests and so on. We have a really nice facility over there in Pinewood. Now, do they put a fan just... in here somewhere? Like, is there a video version? Of we always put fans. Oh, no, but that's when you're doing uh, high-speed Ocean tests and, and so on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. So at the moment, I have the NBC uh, 3 settings. Um, and what are we looking at? So we're looking at the SDR in the image. Is that... The... Uh, this is the converted uh, right. SDR already. Right. And what you can see also on the waveform uh, in the bottom of it is the converted um, image as well. So especially if you look at the diamond, uh, let me see. Yeah, if you look at the diamond uh, shape, uh, you will see how depending on where I am doing the and moving the compression, how that is actually getting losing chroma. Yeah, you see they're getting into the center of the or just compressing that chroma. So by the combination of the two, you will decide, it's kind of a look part of it. Yeah. So there's people that likes the highlights a bit more desaturated. There's people that likes them a little bit more saturated. And what's the amount and do there? So you have the knee. The knee, all of them are in logical terms of IRE values. Mm-hmm. So the knee point is IRE. So mm-hmm. I am compressing from 80. Uh, let me just come back here. So we gave the tool to Chris and uh, NBC is compressing in the input at 85, uh, 81.7% IRE HLG and applying an amount. And, yeah. And and that's where, that's where the knee is. That's the location of the knee. That's the location of the knee. The knee, it. okay. it's not, and, we're calling it a knee for the sake of uh, naming. But and, it's, and, and just to make sure people, I mean, make sure that I understand what you're saying and that everyone else here understands the knee here is that if you have, if you have this and, and you have a, your, your, um, this is going up and then it's curving here. This is what, what I refer to as the knee. That is correct. That's the okay. knee point. Yeah. Okay. And the amount, it's not actually just a straight line as, uh, would be traditionally on, uh, camera systems. It's, uh, it's a full roll off. Right. So it's doubled, actually. And so the amount of... Con- yeah, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, if Chris. I could just... Uh, so uh, an important point to make is that um, uh, as 
uh, um, Pablo mentioned before, it's a two-stage knee. So that eighty-one point seven is that uh, is that pre-point, right? Yeah, that is yeah. correct. That's the, that's the pre-point. The output compression uh, will be on the eighty-two point eight. Yeah. So the combination of the two is what actually ends up giving you that curve that it normally when we are graceful curve in the knee. That is correct. You have a lot of precision on on that knee. It's not a traditional broadcast knee. It's a cinematography or a more cinema. I hate the word cinematic, but <laughs> people is very used with it. But, you know, as soon as you start saying cinematic, people are going to start asking you to shoot football with twenty three nine eight. But don't don't done. get me there, yeah. because then we can start talking about these other bits of the look uh, controls yeah. and so on. So. Um, Going back to the to the slide deck and not trying to go uh, very much out, we've added as well now the gamma compensation, uh, which has been a big topic, especially Chris and, BB- and people from BBC that been in a. There's been a, a, a probably the, one of the biggest um, complex conversations that the broadcast industry has been has had in the last 10, 15 years. So how to if you are converting for 100 or for 200 needs and so on. As um, we are agnostic, we've added now this um, gamma compensation tab, which will be adding the maths use uh, in the UK for converting. So you can also do conversions that would be um, friendly, let's say, for that type of conversions. Right, you know, no. so you're not calculating between those points. And so you're filling that with raw data. Is Is the... Is the source really large? To it, no. it must be dramatically no, I, larger than the thirty-three point, right? It, it is. You need a bit more of horsepower, yeah. let's say, on the um, on the processor. Mm-hmm. But a simple FPGA, uh, yeah. it's uh, can handle it. And if we're talking now on software side, which everything is just starting to become uh, more and more um, software based, right? Um, CPU flies and if you are a gpu the density of conversions you can do yeah per unit you're talking about hundreds yeah Go ahead, Chris. hundreds Alec, yeah Alec, my question for pablo like the the problem that we set up earlier and how complicated it is to get a LUT formatted correctly in an engine could could this sdk could you envision this making itself way across the industry and essentially almost giving us the ability to standardize it so we we have a tool that you you know and like Alex, where you're going, like, can we do it live? And in our live mm-hmm. environment, we talked about, we have to be able to do it for file-based stuff. We have to do it for baseband stuff, like all these yeah. different places that all need to work and be consistent. I guess my question for you, Pablo, is could you envision this making it across, you know, that entire breadth of uh, products so that we could, uh, you know, realize the efficiency of having a single platform and and this high quality processing? That's That's the idea and that's the dream behind the the what we call the ecosystem um and is the ability of moving presets between different platforms different right. implementations all of them being floating point all of those problems that nick uh, that uh, nick sorry that chris was mentioning about that you need to, to because a lookup table is a black box all of those fields that says the color input color output that has to be manually dialed in right into it is a human that actually has to, I mean, you could automate it, some part of it. Uh, all of it is done 
by yourself in the Orion Convert when you tell, okay, I'm converting HLG to SDR. That goes on the, on the VPIT of the SDI. Okay, that, there you go. And the matrices and everything is calculated as soon so, as you... So you're embedding that information, the metadata of all of that information into the SDI signal. Is that going into that line is, 21? Uh, yeah, that is correct. That's, that's VPIT. ST352, I believe, is the standard where it's... <laughs> and that's where... Chris, you always blew my mind on the your knowledge on the standards. <laughs> and I should mention also that because Chromorama, uh, 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 the Chromorama engine, uh, Orion engine uh, built our LUTs, the color box can reproduce the exact NBC transform uh, for up, down, cross, um, which Aja has released publicly um, mm -hmm. with our permission. So you can just put those into the color box and you're going to get the very best result transform um, mathematically generated. Yeah, which is um, what we... Do you haven't seen this? And is this yet? You, you have it in color box. Do you know if it's supported in the FSHDR? Not yet. We are in conversations with, um, with AJA about it. There's a licensing thing that, uh, mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that's a good box. point because it's not a full frame sync just yet. But you know, the yeah. goal would be to get it into a product with a frame sync. Right, that is uh, that's correct. So, uh, Chris, do you? I don't know if because it's quite small here in the presets on the SDK. We've built in already all your conversions, and we're going to add a few more. Excellent. In here, um, and you were asked. You were talking about the blacks and shadows, uh, etc. Yeah. So that's something that we've added these loop controls, which is a very simple tool. Um, but basically, with this, we can we've basically reverse engineer all the Sony, famous Sony looks. Uh, this is also mathematically created, so this invert button actually acts mathematically as well. So you can extract the look out of a piece of content if you would need to. Or so when you say extract, you're figuring out what what that what that. Yeah. But how yep. do you do that without us? Do, do you need another source for a delta between that to to know what that? Because we know exactly what are the, I mean exactly. It's a but does that have to be a close source? resemblance? It's a, it's an emulation of uh, of these uh, famous looks. By the way, they're not the same for HLG than for SLOG three, which is now without implemented. Right. Um, but if we add, for example, that right now that's an NBC conversion with uh, a live uh, look applied onto it. So this could be also extracted. We know exactly those values. What are the, then you have the pedestal contrast, exposure and saturation, those um, four bits of information. That's exactly what those looks are. And you can extract the, them in the same that, way. Does, does that, do those really give you the same control that you would have if you had a knee at the at the shadows? I, I just know that I'm really sensitive to shadows. <laughs> so, 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 the, uh, so, I mean, I'm sensitive to highlights, but but does it give you the same control? Because that's the, yeah. so the this, pedestal is is basically, oh, I, I see what you're doing with pedestal. I got you. I got you. Yeah. I would have loved to add a mode of a toe onto it. <laughs> yeah, because pedestal is really scaling from the from the white point, right? I mean, it's, yeah. so it's pulling up and down, whereas the toe that we were talking about there would be a, probably a more nuanced control there. That, but is, that right. is correct. Probably that's uh, on a different demo. Uh, we get a, a grayscale ramp and right, you will right. see exactly what happens. Which, by the way, if anyone wants to play with the, it's, uh, you have it, um, you can have it with a watermark on the color box. 
and you can play fully with it just with the watermark. So the best thing to do is actually to get a, a ramp and get your head around about the inputs, uh, the, the sort of the pre-compression, post-compression, uh, etc. And by the way, if, the other thing to do when you're looking at this is notice how how useful it is to be looking at the RGB parade when you're moving sliders. Um, whenever you want to figure out what something does, I and mean, this is just a backup for some of folks that may not do HDR tomorrow, um, yeah. but, but a little lesson is there is nothing like having scopes open while you're moving sliders around because then you can see how if you see very quickly, I was able to very quickly understand what it was doing because I was looking at the scopes when he was moving yeah. the pedestal, and so that that's something to just as a as a note for folks to to watch. Yeah, and, and uh, actually, it's funny you say that, Alex, because I think that everything about well, how we're working now, the scopes have like come back. Like I felt like an SDI. They never was, left for me. They were, like, they <laughs> exactly. I, mean, I was going to say like when did they scopes anymore? And now all of a sudden. Like, Everybody's oh looking at scopes again, and it's like, uh, in so many environments, we're like, "Hey, where's that scope?" That I have that you had? took I, it out. I don't do a single yeah. show without that. I'm like, "How can you?" How it's like it's like flying a plane without instruments. <laughs> like it's like the other, and so like, oh, sure, you can do that, but if you get into the clouds, it'd be really nice to know where you are, you know. And yeah. and so the, uh, um, you know, but but I I've been using you know heavily reliant on scopes for 20 years and um, <laughs> started off in I hardware. Live without and, them. No, no. I, I mean, I like my green screens with them, you know, and so the, um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's anyway, so yeah, it's, but they're the most valuable and they're, they're really valuable because you get to understand what's happening. Like you look at something and when you transform something, you can very quickly understand how your tools are actually working. Exactly. And um, I, my partner, she's a cinematographer and uh, when we color grade together and so on, she's always, uh, we're coming from complete different, she's like, stop looking at the scopes and look at the picture. That's what I, I need. It's like, okay, I, I, always, I can't. I, can't. I, I always tell people like when, how to work with a light meter. I'm like, you know, just grab the arm and strike it away. Strike yeah. it away. <laughs> like just, just go ahead and then go back to your scopes and run it. Yeah. We've got a bunch of questions that are, that are stacking up before we run out of time. Uh, do you have anything else you want to show before we? Uh, uh, yeah, let questions? me just go very yeah, yeah. Quickly on uh, well credits you've mentioned um, yeah. most of the things we've been doing the parametric console we've shown already um, this is something I would like to note yeah. the limitations of LUT based workflows because as I said before a LUT is a black box that it expects a particular input and provides a particular output um, but there's a lack of standardization on the terminology overall yeah. in the whole color signs or even signal processing world, the lack of standardization of terminology, it's a huge problem. Yeah. What is saturation in one tool is such a completely different thing in other. Um, and variations between the different hardware and software LUT implementations. Um, they've been mentioned in the Adobe. Uh, they cannot support super whites. They you need to tweak them in a certain way. You need to translate uh, the lookup tables. It's a it's a hassle. Um so it's not easy to know if a LUT is being applied as intended or even if you're using the right LUT most of the times because the file name of the LUT sometimes can be quite complex. And you can always, you mentioned that it's a text file. It should contain right. certain lines. It's not really metadata, but it's, you know, polite information that when we create a LUT, we put over there in the heading, this lot is doing this, and you're suspecting right. this kind of signal, blah, 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 blah. But that's for a human to open it and say, aha, this is the way it should be implemented, but not right. for a machine. Right. Um, so Orion Convert knows what the input and the output are because you've interacted with it, and you tell right. them, I am converting this to this. This is what I'm, that's my intention. 
Um, and um, so it can interpret the input appropriately and correctly and set the VPITs on the on the output automatically. Uh, the advanced highlight control is what I've shown you before, which, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I cannot think of, I mean, how many times in the middle of a large football tournament I've wanted to change the lot, but I can't because it's been distributed for um, worldwide mm-hmm. and we can't because... The light has changed. It's an extremely sunny day, and the this one was keeping, in particular, a lot of color in the highlights. So we had to push the shading to be more conservative with the exposure, which is something that goes against my principles of how do I like to expose a particular picture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good point and a challenge from like both of your backgrounds from film to television, right? Yeah. And it, how and how the audience like experiences a film, right? You go to a theater, it's a set environment, it is what it is for a given period of time. Cool fact, kind of. Right. <laughs> Someone yeah. who works in theaters now, uh, straight live to cool. theaters, I, I, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, and, and the challenge for television, right? Like, and it, and we saw this, and I hate to bring up like the Calm Act and the stuff and the issues we had with audio, right? Like if we still we have to flow the video from our content into commercial into the next show back to content and how the whole thing intermixes it's it's a different set of challenges than you in the film environment you said like you said earlier like it's live it happens it's over but it's also like you you have to think more than just what your program is but programmatically what your entire day looks like essentially yeah, yeah and we're actually working on a standard to try and balance out and achieve those goals when we're intermixing content. So think about, you know, when you have to do a channel change as well. We want the graphic white level to be about the same and not jump all over the place like, you know, audio might if you didn't have loudness uh, controls. Yep. So we're working on a document so that, you know, if you had those images side by side on in post-production, you could actually see parity between them and be able to do an optimal com- comparison. Or yeah. if you had a control room with a multi-view, you can do the same thing. Absolutely. Because it doesn't matter whether you, uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter if the truck comes out perfectly. It still has to go through an entire pipeline to get to the TV and it, mm-hmm. and it has to interact with all these other chunks of content that, that may or may not agree with the truck. <laughs> so, so that's, yeah, yeah. I totally get it. Exactly. Um, yeah, let's, let's, let's jump into the first question. First one in from Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart, Germany. How do you best convert your SDR graphics to HDR? Go ahead, Pablo. Okay, I, I raised my hand on that one. Um, simply, you must use a type of conversion, what is called display light conversion, which uh, intends to, like you will be physically cutting with scissors your RGB screen, your sRGB screen, and place it within the HDR 2020 environment, but preserving all of those colors, nuances, and so on. That's the roughly the definition of a display light conversion. Are you are you yeah. seeing anyone deliver in uh, deliver any of the graphics content in HDR? Mm, there's been some, but um, as I was. But there's no need, in, in my sincere opinion, um, for two main reasons. Most of the colors in nature are about the P3 um, gamut. Um, so, yeah, there's no really need, or you're not going to use much of the 2020 color mm-hmm. side of it. It's like for extremely saturated. I mean, if you're doing lightsabers and things like this, maybe. 
but for graphics insertion, I don't think we're gonna, we, you don't need the color space itself. And because graphics are created in a very controlled environment, mm-hmm. um, you can Some take, are. <laughs> if, if we really well, reflect I, I surfaces. Alex, yeah, I think Alex, to add to that, I think that uh, on the graphics and HDR, what we've seen be really successful is actually AR graphics. And when we look at AR yeah. implementations, and I think some of the best examples we have of that right now is if you look at what NBC did at the Tokyo Olympics, we had our talent outside at the right. Hilton and our AR vendor actually tracked where the sun was. And then off of the materials that they had, you got realistic glints because they were working in an HDR space and the entire production was HDR. So it really didn't make the HDR feel like it didn't belong. It felt like it was just part of the set because it was, you saw the glints and everything else. Yeah. And I, I think I wanted to add on the the standard graphics back to the question. Like, I think that's part of the key of the this LUT package that you know the NBC LUTs and how you know Chrome, Chrome Rama has empowered that is everything in SDR converts up to HDR right how it started in SDR. And one of the things you know, so Coke Red or Twitter Blue or you know, pick that commercial brand or say home team color orange or whatever right. that is, comes up to HDR and goes back because you want all that consistency between all the different things in uh, HDR space. But I think kind of where you're going, and I think Pablo's already done a little of this, is you get you have the opportunity to potentially play with a little bit of highlight expansion. Yeah. Just to give it a little bit of punch and a little bit of pop on the graphics, where it starts to not feel great necessarily with live video, but graphics, I think, is our opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's a simple thing, and I'll throw it to Chris after this. The, the uh, uh, I'm building countdown clocks for our show, and they're, we're about to start broadcasting once a week uh, in HDR and 5.1. So I'm capturing the ambisonic, and then I'm taking a, a, a HDR probe for the reflections, and then I'm putting those into a, a HDR you know, background plate um, that I'm shooting all together. So you kind of hear the birds or you hear whatever's around you and you see this thing. And, um, and, uh, but that I feel like I want to generate in HDR, you know, to, to deliver mm-hmm. back to it because of the reflections and so on and so forth. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. So the hard part with graphics is if they're still graphics, they're typically full range. So that's at a hundred percent of signal level. If we have video, right. we've got an additional 9% that we can tweak with. Um, And sometimes some of that can be stretched a little bit for highlight expansion. But if you are not subtle, then you can really get some garish HDR video if you stretch too much. (laughs) So it's really, really important to be gentle and selective. So some of these changes, I would say, are subjective. And you have to be very careful what you're going to apply it to. For instance, if you had a graphic that's full screen white, you do any highlight expansion on that, and it's just going to move everything up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, it's a, it's it's a delicate subject there. Yeah. And that's maybe what I was. Alex, we we take a whole. Uh, we'll do one of the HDR sessions, and we'll focus on graphics. I mean, it's something we talk about. I think we have one planned. I think so. Yeah. So sure. We'll, we'll definitely dive dive into that. That'd be great. Well, count, count on me on that one. I can I can do the the, the demo. Yes. So uh, just going on to just finishing the topic of what uh, Michael was mentioning on the you can do some subtle expansions. Um, this very multi-sports event that happened in Tokyo uh, in 2021, um, with the graphic team, we agreed on where graphic white would be, and then using that extra headroom that we have up to 109%, uh, 
and just basically we create an expansion of the of the highlights so we were faking for specific effects like metal effects shiny we were using that to then expand that into the HDR realm. So it's really easy to to fake it and to and to fake yeah. it well. But you, you just need to kind of reverse engineer the the maths a little bit, and talk with your with your um, creative team, and um, and you got it. Next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana, asking, please elaborate a bit about the terms deliverable agnostic and camera agnostic and how both relate to the color conversion process. Do they work in unison? Uh, (laughs) I think he's talking about ACES. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the only color work uh, pipeline or framework that I know that it's agnostic. Right. In terms of camera and deliverable. And, and of course in the film world that's the that's the uh Yeah. And it is agnostic because it's just placing everything into a very large container. So this gets lower back in, it puts it all into the container, gets everything, it converts whatever it's going into into this large container. And if you keep on adding those things to that container and you get them so that they all look together there, then then you're coming back out. And it's a little like what Chris, I think, showed a little earlier mm. with going to, it's not the same, but it's similar to the putting them all into a, uh, a 2020. It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's larger than that. The um, AP0 from, uh, from ACES is larger than the human locus. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a triangle that actually uh, compiles all of that horseshoe that we've seen before. All the, other uh, around is, it. the other difference is that is that ACES is scene referred. Um, and so when you look at the container, we were talking about ITPPQ BT2020. That's an absolute uh, container, being that it's using the PQ transfer function. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit different. Right. Yeah, it's been purely scene referred is the only way to be agnostic. Is the only way right. you can remove the camera from the equation and go back to the scene. That's what right. basically camera agnostic uh, is related to. Next question. Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany. For a pipeline that should both produce HDR and SDR, would you convert all sources to HDR and then do an SDR down mix at the end of the year, or would you do it in SDR and up convert to HDR at the end? Go ahead, Michael. Go ahead. Yeah, I think so. What our suggestion for the single stream workflow is to take all of those SDR sources, move them up to HDR, make those creative decisions work all the way in HDR. And then once you have that, we'll call it HDR master, you can then get from HDR to SDR deliverables. You can do HDR deliverables in any number of formats. So if you're, you know, if it's a live TV show and you're HLG, you can convert to PQ for distribution. You can pretty much do anything once you start at HDR. And it gives you that uh, leverage to actually work in the HDR space, which you wouldn't get as if, if you worked any differently. And yeah, on, go, yeah, go ahead, Pablo. And on top of that, I always explain it in an easy term, which is it's always easier to destroy than to create. So if you can keep as many sources in HDR, it will be easier to destroy that information because it's, it's, it's maths. You're destroying information at the end of the day. So. You, you could say, you could you also say you can make better creative decisions when you start with more data and work towards less and, <laughs> right. less you are, and work the other way. That's what we, we often talk about. You know, you, you, you can't get it back. <laughs> like once you throw it away, you, you know, it's not, it's not there anymore. It's, it's, it's gone. So uh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, next question. 
Uh, it's a question for me. Um, how can I incorporate this tech into my <laughs> Sony S-Log3, Adobe After Effects, Adobe Premiere, and uh, create a workflow that works well? Uh, do you mean the technology, the Orion Convert uh, that I've demonstrated? Yeah, I'm thinking that seems to make the most sense. I'm a total newbie to this, so I, I yeah. admit, not knowing. So we, we have just uh, implemented S-Log3 uh, into the bunch of conversions that we can support at the moment. Um, the plugin for Adobe will work both in Premiere or in uh, After Effects. And that has uh, this its own um, user manual because bypassing the color management of Premiere, ain't no easy task. But we've managed to do it. But it's it's not easy to do these color managed and using super white and super black data um, in uh, in Premiere. But we are delivering with the plugin how to set it up and how you need to set up your timelines and so on. Because basically, we need to bypass or undo, better said, the automatic color management that Premiere has on it, and you cannot get rid of it. Good, Chris. Yeah, and in terms of After Effects, I think there's a bunch of work for Adobe to do there um, that we're waiting for um, <laughs> around color management. So hopefully uh, we get to the point where, you know, we have all the tools that we need. And right now, would you say that the software platform that's most geared for this would be Resolve? I would say that's uh, probably the most rigorous. Partially because of its pedigree. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's designed. To, that was what it was designed yeah. originally to do. Yeah. Yes and no. And I would say to you to also answer the question, stuff you can do now, what Chris has done on the GitHub that's shared. So there's lots formatted for Avid, for Premiere, right. for Resolve, so that like the headers he talked about before that properly handles uh, the conversion. So without having the, you know, obviously you want to get to the Orion engine for all this stuff that it does great, but there's also those less formatted in the other uh, correctly for each one of those platforms. And I believe, you know, as much as we're looking for vendors like Adobe to continue to evolve their products to support this, I think a lot of work's been done. Like for example, Premiere, there's a lot of people editing right now, HDR in Premiere. Mm -hmm. You just back to that conversation earlier about your scopes, you got to be really careful because when it tries to automatically auto magically help you do things it yeah. doesn't always do the thing that you intended it to do magic is like that um, so, next, next next question uh this is from sharon barouche in port hanumi california what's the difference between an st a bt and an arc rec a rec, rec. A rec. good BT i'm rec. new to this and some of these have the same numbers so i'm confused which is being talked about and why or what i do with these on shows when i work I think I can answer that question. Um, and the the answer that, as I understand it, a REC and BT are the same thing. So BT709 is the same as REC709. REC stands for recommendation. Uh, um, and the complicated part is if it starts with ITUR, uh, it could be uh, an ITU recommendation or a report. And it's hard to figure out which unless you pull it up and look at the header in in the file itself and it'll then say it. And ST did was ST mentioned? It wasn't. Okay, well, well ST go ahead, go ahead and elaborate though. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Right. Uh next question. 
Next question coming in from uh, Carol Cozumanter from Saxophon, North Carolina. What cameras are best for loading LUTs in the camera for live event and use instead of having a traditional shader in engineering? If you're just using the cameras for recording, is it better to just use the LUT in the post and for monitor calibration? Oof. <laughs> it's a pretty long... Uh... Uh, I'm going to raise my hand. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I jumped yeah, in go before. Yeah, no, it's all good. All good. <laughs> Damn it, I forgot to do it. <laughs> uh, what cameras are best to loading LUTs? The only cameras that you can load LUTs into are cinematography base or cinematography cameras. So either any of the Cine Alta family um, or cameras that are basically coming from um, for that kind of uh, EUs. Now, do you... Um, well, I guess I guess yeah, one question. I was just going to say, you know, but no one looking at our time, could we say that, Pablo, would it be fair to say it's really based on workflow, right? Like in, yeah. in a, a film-based workflow where you have the time to utilize that creative control, shooting as close to raw as possible so that you know, your DIT, whoever's grading, has all that uh, leverage is most beneficial in the, like, as Alex said earlier, in that live environment where we are like fired up and go, the LUT is already on the camera because, like, if this is a live sports event, we're shooting an HLG and it's, you know, it is what it is. And we have, but we don't get all that extra time to grade that you would, e you know. Yes, but it if you think of the, on a, on a workflow, on a single master workflow, uh, basically you're shading looking through a LUT, which is pretty similar to what we've been doing in cinematography with uh, the LUTs built into the into the camera, into the viewfinders and so on. Mm -hmm. So I've been creating looks for cinematographers uh, for years and years for them to have a close resemblance on how it's going to look like later in the grade and to expose accordingly to that. So creating LUTs that were with uh, exposure compensations minus third of a stop, right. minus half a stop, and things like that to open more the raw and basically you open due to the well, opposite. And, and yeah, and, and for in the live environment, for some of the stuff that I work on, when we want to match cameras that don't have LUTs and aren't going to match those other cameras, running them through, we found that running them through a LUT box of some sort mm -hmm. and applying those LUTs allows us to take them into resolve, match them to the cameras that we have, and then put that LUT in there in a pass-through so that we can get GoPros and other things to look as close to our other cameras as possible, um, yeah. as opposed to, the, it was just hard to shade them otherwise. We, just, we have a lot more control in a LUT than we would in a, in, in you know, some, you know, typically even a color front um, environment. Yeah, uh, correct. Yeah, nice. yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, and I just wanted to very quickly mention that there are some broadcast camera CCUs that do support uh, LUT conversion now, um, but that's fairly recent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, last question for the for the hour. Douglas Carmichael asking, uh, you mentioned Resolve support for Orion Convert. Is that for both the free and studio versions of Resolve? Good, Pablo. It'll be a plugin. So I am I not sure if the, I don't know if the free version can, has plugin support, it which does. I think it does. So then there oh, you go. Yeah. That's the, I, that's I, the answer. I actually don't know. I said that, but I realized exactly. all my versions That's, are studio, so I don't. Yeah, yeah mine too. <laughs> you buy, you buy, you buy, you buy, you buy fifteen black magic. No, it does, you have a lot of studio it, laying around, so it's just. It does support HDR, but I don't know if you can um, load or install plugins and use them with yeah. the free version. That's something. If that's the case, then it will be for both. And uh, if it's not the case, it will be only for this studio. I'm afraid. Uh, Chris, Pablo, and Michael. 
it's just amazing to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, taking your time out and joining us. It, it really... Having us. Yeah, it's just really fantastic. And I think it's helping a lot of people here watch, uh, you know, both now live and and, and and as people start to watch it later, really start to get their head around this. And I think it's just so important for our industry for more people to understand it, you know, understand what's actually happening there, even for, for me to understand it better. So, and, and thank you, Alex, and the entire Office Hours team for putting this together and having us on and giving a platform to talk about it. And, you know, I speak for the three of us, you know, we're always happy to be here. I think this brain trust that, you know, between Pablo and Chris have really helped this industry get to where they are today. And like for everybody else listening, you know, you can find all our info in various places, definitely reach out and ask questions. We're all, <laughs> you can tell we all love this topic and are excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we traveled um, um, 42,000 miles today, 68,000 kilometers. Um, and uh, that is 338 bananas, million bananas for scale. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, That's an interesting uh, measure. You know, a little Reddit, a little Reddit, uh, a little Reddit thing here. Thank you so much okay. to the panelists. We can't do this without you. Thank you. Thank you to the, uh, to all the people who asked questions, all our producers that asked all the questions. And thank you again uh, to the incredible team. This is a huge team that, that that's global that develops the software to run the show, that manages making sure people are ready for the show, uh, that, um, and that actually runs the show from all over the world. So thank you all for your contribution. Let's go ahead and jump in into after hours. Take care, everybody. Oh, that was great. Bye. Really yeah, Thanks, thank guys. Alex, awesome. Hey, really lovely. Very really, nice really nice show. Everybody. Yeah. Nice Thanks to for the you work you guys do. Thanks for the work you do. <laughs> Good luck. And uh, I have to jump out. I yep. uh, cannot stay into the, the after hours, I'm afraid. I need it's to get good. in my car and drive uh, about four hours now. Before have it gets started. Have a good holiday, Pablo. Thank you All so right. much. And let's, uh, Michael is talking next week. Yeah, I must. Yeah. All I'll right. catch you later. All right. Take it easy.